You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Uh, If you have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and open it up to uh, Romans chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, you can lift your hand up real quick. We'll get one to you. And uh, we also have a giant print version of the Bible available. If you prefer that, uh, Romans chapter 13 we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 today. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll read it together. It says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear uh, bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake, For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, as we come to this, uh, this text that speaks right to us, Lord. Uh, as much as it did to the Romans in their day, Lord, it speaks to us. Uh, Lord, we have many laws uh, that are over us. We have many authorities, many rulers in various capacities. And, um, and Lord, sometimes our heart doesn't appreciate them. Sometimes our heart doesn't respect them. And, uh, and Lord, your word has much to say to us today. And so we pray that your spirit would speak with power and with conviction and uh, that you bring about repentance in our heart where that is needed. Lord, that you just give us hearts of awe and reverence um, just for you and what you've ordained. Lord, speak specifically to us. Bring about gospel application for us today. And uh, above all things, be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. Well, in all of the cities that we've got in this great and awesome nation... Uh, The civil leaders have come up with some very impressive, very great, and uh, sometimes ridiculous laws and ordinances. For instance, in Oxford, Ohio, it's unlawful for a woman to appear in public while unshaven. This includes her legs and her face. So, might need to make a call to Jason Carr to get that established here in Prineville. I don't know, does Jason even do that? I don't know, what does he do? I don't know. (laughs) I need to read a book. Um, In New York City, citizens may not greet each other by putting one's thumb to the nose and wiggling the fingers. I think that's the He-Man's Woman Hater Club on Little Rascals. Uh, It's against the law. New York State, it's against the law to throw a ball at someone's head for fun. A license must be purchased before hanging clothes on a clothesline. A fine of $25 can be levied for flirting. This old law specifically prohibits men from turning around on a city street and looking at a gal in that way. 
A second conviction for a crime of this magnitude calls for a violating male to be forced to wear a pair of horse blinders wherever and whenever he goes outside for a stroll. In Nebraska, it is not legal for a tavern owner to serve beer unless a nice kettle of soup is also brewing on the stove. In Kentucky, a female shall not appear in a bathing suit on any highway within the state. But that was repealed on January 1st, 1975. So, uh, you know, those 70s. Uh, In Illinois, a state law requires that a man's female companion shall call him master while out on a date. The law does not apply to married couples. You guys awake today or did that turkey, like, is it still? This is good stuff. In Zion, Illinois, it's illegal for anyone to give cats, dogs, or other domesticated animals a lit cigar. There we go. That's what I've been waiting for. In California, Los Angeles, it's not legal to bathe two babies at the same time in the same tub. In Riverside, California, kissing on the lips is illegal unless both parties wipe their lips with carbonized rose water. It's against the local health ordinance. So, in Oregon, it's against the law for a wedding ceremony to be performed in a skating rink. In Klamath Falls, my hometown was just there yesterday. It's illegal to walk down a sidewalk and knock a snake's head off with your cane. And in Marion County, ministers are forbidden from eating garlic or onions before delivering a sermon. Praise God. I had peanut butter and jelly toast this morning, so don't worry. Romans 13 is a passage dealing with obeying the laws of the land. And as you look at the whole of the Bible, it's surprising how much the Bible deals with the governments of the states and the kings and how they rule over us. Now, it might seem, just because we came here this morning and we just read seven verses, it might seem like a bit of a random subject uh, just placed, there, uh, placed here uh, in the middle of the book of Romans. But uh, as you look at uh, the culture that Paul was writing to, as you look at the whole of the text of the book of Romans, as you look at the history of the church, this isn't just a random subject, but it's spoken of Paul because, first of all, there's a dichotomy, there's this uh, paradox that we live in, uh, in that we are dual citizens. We have a citizen here on earth with presidents and governors and senators and representatives, uh, but we also have a citizenship in heaven. Uh, with a king that will never die. Uh, also, Jesus's teaches, Jesus teached a whole bunch on our relationship and how to deal and live among these governing authorities. The Roman Christians that Paul writes to were get, beginning to be affected by the cruelty of Rome and even its sword that we read of in, in uh, chapter 8. Uh, all day long were accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Uh, these guys were beginning to be persecuted. And there's a well-known couple that we read of in the book of Acts and in Corinthians, Aquila and Priscilla. Um, You know, Aquila and Priscilla and their situation may have given rise in Paul's life to Romans 13, 1 through 7. It's referred in Acts 18 to Paul found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And so that expulsion of, uh, G- of Jews would have included Jewish Christians. 
And so perhaps as Paul had had conversations with Aquila and Priscilla, this was on his heart, on his mind. The church in Rome knew about it, and it, it needed to be uh, addressed. Uh, Romans chapter 12, this previous chapter, uh, deals with our life and our conduct and our behavior with those people that are persecuting us, with those people that are spitefully treating us, with those people that are, are evil towards us. And, uh, and it says that we're not to, to take vengeance for ourselves, but we're to let the Lord have vengeance and we're to give place to his wrath. It's his prerogative. And sometimes the way he does that are through the governing authorities. And so, uh, and so this isn't a random text, but it's, uh, it's full of context. This text has implications for war and peace, for dictators and totalitarianism, for concentration camps and gulags, revolts and revolutions, laws and law enforcement, political activism and civil disobedience, elections and lobbying. Voting and paying taxes, speed limits and seat belts and stop signs and baby seats. There's a whole lot that can be applied to us from this text. It's been called the mountain peak of the book of Romans that makes a reader dizzy with implication. So God give us some oxygen as we get way up high on this text dealing with government authorities. We're going to look today at six ways that we are in relationship to the government. Verse 1, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So our first relationship with the government authority is that we are to be subject to the governing authorities. It says here in the very first three words, let every soul, this means every man of you, every woman of you, are you a Republican that's a little bit bent out of shape after this last election? This is for you. Are you a Democrat? Are you an Independent or a Libertarian or a Green Party member? Are you a redneck? Do you hail from Montana or Wyoming? A little bit more of a free spirit. This is for you. Has your family been in the newspaper for having ties with the Montana militia? then this is for you. I don't know who that could be. But we're to be subject to the governing authorities. We're to be obedient. And, and not even so much to the man who's in authority. While that is true, the idea is to the whole office in totality. Uh, Titus chapter 3 verse 1 says, you know, Paul writes to Titus. He says, remind them, remind Christians to be subject to rulers and authorities and to obey. And then coupled with that is to be ready for every good work. In Peter, 1 Peter 2.13, Peter tells us, Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Now, whose sake is this for? Primarily and ultimately, it's for the glory of God. It's for his sake. It's for the furtherance of his kingdom. It's that we would be a sweet-smelling aroma to the world that we walk among. That, that we would be a witness and a testimony of our God. It's for the Lord's sake. Now, whether we're to be obedient to the king as supreme or the president in our case, or to governors or those that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to shame or silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, 
but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And so our relationship is that we're to be subject to governing authorities. And the reason for this submission comes at the latter part of verse 1. There is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. We see here God's sovereignty in appointing authority. And then even stronger, we have again, there is no authority except by God. This is explicit. This is a a deep, absolute statement by Paul. And Piper in one of his sermons has a great uh, whole sermon on why is he so just absolute in the way he puts this, that there is no government. Any government that exists, it's by God. encourage you to read it if you get a chance. I'll give you the reference for it. But one of the reasons for this setting up and sovereign work of God and setting up government is because there's no species on the earth that slaughters itself like the human race by the millions, by the droves, just killing each other, just ripping each other off, just defrauding each other, abusing each other verbally, sexually, physically, assaulting one another. And there's this sovereign placement of a system that will help protect and help establish good. The opposite of this establishment of government is anarchy. It's a tragedy if you've ever lived in it, if you've ever watched documentaries on it, it's about the most we've ever seen of it. It's a tragedy among nations. And so often we have this false assumption that people are basically good and not evil, and we can make it on our own. And that's just not the case for the human race. It's popular nowadays to have these sociological studies about who's right, who's wrong, how to make decisions. We've got shows of of passengers on an airplane crashing on a desert island, and who's in charge and who rules. It's the the show Lost, if you've ever seen it, you know. Or we've got the new show, The Walking Dead, and zombies are killing everybody, and people are holding themselves up in houses. Well, who's in charge and who makes the rules? And, you know, one guy with an old sheriff badge, it's about worthless that, you know. Who rules? Who's in control? There's total anarchy going on out there. Our culture is is actually obsessed with these apocalyptic type shows with like, who's in charge? That's like one of the main themes. Now, God knows that the human government is imperfect, but apparently even a flawed government is better than no government at all. We need to have this big picture of even Romans chapter 13, the whole of scripture that both democracy and dictatorship is better than anarchy. We see this in Judges chapter 21, verse 25. This book of Judges is also known as Israel's Dark Ages. What was going on in Israel's Dark Ages? Well, in those days, there was no king in Israel. All right, so that's one negative aspect of what was going on. The other negative aspect is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's anarchy. Everybody doing what's right in their eyes. No government, no order. So that's a problem. But what about when you have a government that seems to be corrupt or evil or vile or leadership within the country that seems to be pagan or corrupt? Are they appointed by God as well? Now, we Christians would believe and and know that the best form of government is not a monarchy. It's not even a democracy, but it's a theocracy where the true God sits on the throne. 
And the Bible predicts one day when that will happen, we'll be ruled by Jesus and all nations will come to worship him and he will rule and reign. And I'm excited for that. But until that time, any form of government is better than no government at all. Remember who Paul's writing to here, all right? Before you get you know, your bonnet in a bunch. Remember who's reading this and who first would be like, oh, where to what? Where to what? To our government? Where, what? Who was on the throne of Rome? Just down the street from where this letter was probably read out loud. You had Caesar Nero sitting on the throne. This dude was a certifiable nut job. All right, he needed a straight jacket and to be taken down to the loony bin. Nero had set himself up as God. He demanded that people be putting pinches of incense on an altar of worship toward him to say that he was deity. Count your blessings. He killed his wife and son to consolidate his power. He threw Christians to the lions and burned them at the stake to light his drunken orgies. Nero set fire to Rome to make room for his expansive building project. It's a popular saying that Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Caesar was a madman, but Paul is crystal clear. Despite the personality of the one holding the office, the church needs to respect and obey the governing authority. That was true for the Roman power of Paul's day that was appointed by God and also was thrown down by God in his sovereignty. That was true of the Nazi power, led by Hitler, where some six million Jews were obliterated, and Europe was invaded and overrun by war for years. What's beautiful, though, is that we see that even secular historians write of the Jewish genocide leading to a sympathetic heart and mind of other nations towards the Jews and an outcry that they should have their own land, leading to three years later the establishment of the nation of Israel with popular support of, uh, of the globe. And so God's sovereign, even in the midst of a dictator or a fascist leader like, uh, like Hitler, of uh, the Nazi party, you know, and of course, emotions are high here in uh, November, the end of November, as our country has just re-elected and, the, and spoken and re-elected uh, President Obama. And many people have been out of shape, struggling with this. Was Obama reappointed and re-elected by God in his sovereignty? Could a man who is for abortion, who is for partial birth abortion, who has an agenda to bring about gay marriage in our nation, could he really have been set up by God? Well, let's look at the whole of Scripture. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. God changes the time and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. So who is the one that changes it? Who is the one that brings about a new administration? Who does that? That's God. Who allows somebody to be elected? It's God. He's over it. He's in control. The book of Daniel, chock full of it, which is interesting because Daniel was a little Jewish boy, 15 years old, who was taken captive by the wicked Babylonian empire. And you've got over six statements that deal with the sovereignty of God in ruling over the nations. So he's writing this and he himself has just been oppressed and has been through the ringer and watched his family be separated from him, probably even killed 
by the Babylonians. And he writes again in Daniel chapter 4, verse 17, the second part of the verse, uh, where it says, and let me look up there to see what you guys got. Uh, in, in, well, let's just read it. The decision is made by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdoms of men or the kingdom of men gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. Is God in control? Man, let the living know who is in control. He gives it to whomever he will. Verse 32 says, uh, and they shall drive you from men and your dwelling shall be, by the way, this is him speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar got prideful in Daniel chapter four, thinking he looked at his empire of Babylon. He says, look what I've done. Look what I've set up for myself. And the Lord humbles him. And there's a prophecy over his life that he's going to be uh, made like an ox, like a wild beast. He's going to walk around on all fours. He's going to grow hair out like ox's hair, oxen's hair. He's going to grow great claws like eagle claws, and he's going to eat grass. And, and he's going to be humbled big time. And, and so there's a prophecy over him then again and that the Lord would drive you from men. Your dwelling place shall be with the beasts of the field. They'll make, it'll make you eat grass like oxen. And seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. And then again in Daniel 5.21, the same thing, same words are used. You need to know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. He rules in the United States and he gives the presidency to whomever he chooses. Though he may disapprove of their evil or their means, God allows the Hitlers, the Stalins, the Saddams, as well as the Bushes and the Obamas to rise to power. He has his reasons. He is God and he orchestrates this political stage that we've all been watching for his own purposes. There have been various authorities that God has raised up. We know this includes wicked rulers as well as good ones because the Bible tells us about wicked kings and wicked nations that God has guided into office. As you look at the Midianites, clear back in the dark ages of Israel, when men did what was right in their own eyes and there was no king, God brought the Midianites along against the Israelites that they might chasten them, that they might be disciplined because of their wickedness. And at the same time, God raises up a Gideon and 300 men to fight and to bring a victory against them. God is, is allowing a refining fire to take place in Israel. God allowed a king named Jeroboam to be raised up in Israel. He was one of the most wicked kings of Israel. And 1 Kings chapter 2, 12, verse 15 describes the intrigue that put him in place where it says, It was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that wicked Jeroboam would be placed in power. In 722 BC, the Lord raises up the Assyrians to raid the land of Israel and to lead the Israelites out of the land naked and with rings in their noses. He was chastening them like he told them that he would. He says, if you don't quit with your sin and your idolatry and your sexual immorality and your worship of other gods and your child sacrifices, and if you don't turn back to the living God, this is what will happen. And so the Assyrians came in 722 BC, led the Israelites captive. And then a hundred years later, because the Judeans wouldn't look at the example of their sister, as described as sister Israel, they were led away captive by Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of Babylon. 
And Jeremiah 21 verse 5 speaks towards ne- about Nebuchadnezzar. God says, I've made the earth and the man and the beast that are on the ground by my great power and outstretched arm and have given it to whomever seemed proper to me. And now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and the beasts of the field I've also given him to serve him. The Lord considered Nebuchadnezzar, which what, he wasn't that much different than a Hitler. You know, he, he was notoriously cruel. And yet God calls him, hey, he's my servant. He's working out my plan here. And he also is given in Ezekiel 29, verse 18, again, son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, caused his army to labor strenuously against Tyre. Every head was made bald. So the Babylonians are working really hard against uh, Tyre and Sidon. I believe uh, Egypt was in control of them at the time. And they were work- maybe they were wearing hard hats or something and their heads rubbed bald. You know, it says that they, uh, every shoulder rubbed raw in their work. And yet, neither he nor his army received wages from Tyre for the labor they expanded. So the Lord says, Surely I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He shall take away her wealth, carry off her spoil, and remove her pillage, and that will be the wages for his army. Now listen to this. I have given him the land of Egypt for his labor because they worked for me. So God gives him the land of Egypt. He raises up kings. I think it's the book of Daniel that also said that God makes the borders of the countries for his own glory. What about a New Testament character named Pontius Pilate, who above all other rulers didn't reward the guy who did good, but delivered him up to be crucified and allowed a murderer, Barabbas, to be brought out in his place. In John 19, Pilate says to Jesus, Don't you know that I have the authority to release you or to crucify you? And Jesus said, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. So, man does not create government. God did. Man does not sustain it. God does. Civil authority is God's idea in this age. And we as Christians are called to submit to it in reverence for God. Not necessarily reverence for the ruler. God has stripped the ruler of their final authority. And that's what verse 1 means. God has the final authority. It is God who is God. And when you submit to the authority, you're submitting to God. It's for the Lord's sake, we read in 1 Peter 2. In other words, keeping the law is an act of Christian worship. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authority, we're back in Romans 13, by the way, I know we jumped around a bit there. Romans 13, 2, therefore, whoever resists the authority, resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So, The second thing that we know in our relationship with the governing authorities is that we are not to resist. Whether this is building codes or speed zones or blockades for parades or regulatory agencies, 
We're not to resist. We're not to rebel. We're not to take a stand against. If you rebel, if you resist, you're rebelling against God and what he has set up. And you're bringing judgment, whether that's civil judgment through ticketing or jail time, or divine judgment is brought upon yourself. Now, I love that Jesus never asks us to do something that he himself won't do. He leads by example. Paul the Apostle does the same thing. He lived as a servant of Rome in those days. He didn't fight their laws, but he rolled with their laws respectively. And it would lead him to speak before kings, kings, excuse me. And as you read the latter parts of the book of Acts, there's a whole political drama that's working out in Paul's life that as he uses Roman law for his own good, it'll get him to preach the gospel in many different ways before kings, before soldiers, eventually got him all the way to Rome before Caesar Nero, where he got to preach it to Nero. Now, Paul knew that he couldn't change all of Rome but he went at it changing it one man at a time, finally preaching to the emperor himself. It's been said, actually, that it was after Paul preached the gospel to Nero that he really went crazy, that he just completely became a madman. You know, there's an interesting uh, account in the book of Acts, chapter 23, verses 1 through 5, where Paul looked earnestly at the council. You know, he'd been in shackles, and, and he's giving a defense, and he says, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Doesn't seem like a harmful thing to say, right? Well, right after he says it, the high priest Ananias commands those who stood by him to strike him in the mouth. And then Paul said to him, and I love this, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? And then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. I mean, talk about being in a predicament, right? I mean, you're standing there giving, giving a defense for the gospel. Unlawfully, he's hit. He's a Roman citizen, and he gets punched in the face, and he retaliates, maybe in the flesh. God will strike you, you white water. Oh, wait, you're a ruler over. I didn't know you were the high priest. Sorry, sorry. You know, he's like, but... But how does he, he walks in humility, recognizes where he's been wrong, you know, and it's just man, a great example for us. And so with this, though, where's the line? Is there a place to rebel against authority? Is there a room for militia groups? And we see in scripture, there's a theme of the line. There's a theme of where it's, it's actually good to rebel. And that is when you are forbidden to do what God commands or you are commanded to do what God forbids. Did you get that little play on words there to help you remember it? When you are forbidden to do what God commands or when you're commanded to do what God forbids. We're going to look at some accounts of some rebellion, all right? Uh, let's look at Daniel chapter 6 where we have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're brought to the plain of Dura, around, around Iraq, modern-day Iraq. And Nebuchadnezzar had built this statue of himself that was some 90 feet tall, made out of gold. And he brought the whole nation and all of the governors before the, this statue. And he brought an orchestra. And he said, hey, when the orchestra plays, I want everybody to bow down and worship this statue of me. 
And so, you know, the trombone goes, the New King James Version says sack butt, you know, you got to laugh there, but the trombone blows, you know, and everybody, oh, great statue. And there's three guys still standing, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so one of the soldiers or guards says, there's three guys that are standing down there. And the king, Nebuchadnezzar, he liked these guys. He was really bummed that they were being disobedient. So he gives them another chance. He says, maybe you didn't hear me. I don't have a microphone system. But when you hear the orchestra sound, bow down right now. And if you don't, I'm just going to let you know. See that fiery furnace over there that I had built for just such an occasion? You're going to be going into it. And I love their response. They say in Daniel 6.16, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that's the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. And we see that God does deliver them. God does miraculously come through for them. He does grant them favor. But even if he didn't, he says, we don't, they say, we don't care. We're not going to bow down. You're commanding us to do something that God forbids, to worship another God, and we won't do it. In a New Testament passage, and we referenced it last week, Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man on the way. This lame man hadn't walked for 40 years, and they heal the guy. And he jumps up and he leaps and he praises God. And it's a great testimony to preach the gospel. So many people are getting saved that Peter and John are put in prison. And they're beaten up. And they're told in Acts chapter 4, they're commanded not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. All right? So they're commanded or they're forbidden to do something that God commands. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And they basically draw the line in the sand right there. That place where it's okay to rebel. Look, we love you. All right. As much as is possible with us, we want to live at peace. But you're forbidding us to preach the gospel. You're forbidding us to make disciples of all nations. And I'm sorry, but that was the commission of our Lord before he ascended. This is what we're to do. And we're going to keep preaching. And we're going to look a little more in a little bit about uh, some times of rebellion and the scriptures against, um, against authority and when that happens. But verse 3 in Romans 13 says, rulers are typically, all right, they're not a terror to good works but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. So the third thing we see in this text in our relationship with the government is that we are to position ourselves to do good. If you do this, your relationship will be good with the government. You know, and this verse comes to mind a lot when I'm driving out, you know, in the desert and my speedometer gets a little bit on the toppy side of things, you know. And my wife says, hey, 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 we don't need a ticket right now, <laughs> you know. And I go, well, honey, who's the one that in college had her license suspended? And then that never goes over well. But, <laughs> but the, <laughs> don't tell her I said that. She didn't come to this service. <laughs> but I have said that to her. Anyways, <laughs> maybe I need to listen to the gospel family series. 
the verse comes to mind, I remind myself that I don't need to be worried about the police or the state patrol when I'm going the speed limit. I'm terror-free. It's a terror-free zone. But if I'm speeding, then I sweat. It's then that I sweat. I'm not going to be worried about getting my car impounded if I'm driving with a license. You know, and if you're driving without a license, you should sweat. Amen, Bill? He doesn't mind. He's the DMV guy here. Okay. (laughs) Sorry to point you out. Um, But it says, do what is good and you'll have praise from the same. Do what is good and the police will actually say, hey, thanks. Hey, we appreciate your help today. You'll have praise from the authorities. Now, I love reading history and that secular history says that the reason Rome became a secular nation wasn't because of Constantine. And that's what a lot of history, that's what we read. But it was actually because of Roman leaders watching Christian lives lived out and they were transformed by lives in action for the gospel. You know, back in the day, people would have babies like crazy with all the fornication that was going on. And they would take these babies, unwanted babies, instead of the firehouse, they took them to the Colosseum and laid these babies on the steps. Well, who took care of these babies? The Christians would just come out of the woodwork, out of the catechisms and... Cat, cat, thank you, catacombs, where there were catechisms. And they, okay, they came out and they grabbed these babies and they adopted them and they made them their own. And then when the plague would sweep through Rome, when all these bodies, all these people are put out in the streets and quarantined, who would go and serve those that, are, that were stricken with the plague? It was the Christians. And the Christians preached these messages of a loving God who laid his life down. And they lived lives. Even their family lives were a testimony of God. And one man married to one woman for an entire life. And that was powerful to these governing authorities. Rome was changed by Christian lives, Christian behaviors, the Holy Spirit living out these lives in these Christians. Wilberforce, who took down slavery in England, lived a life of integrity before his government. Great movie out now, Lincoln. You guys should see it. You know, this, this, the, the process in our government, you know, that, that men stood up for the, you know, in love for African-Americans. That they wouldn't be entrenched in slavery any longer. You know, I was listening to Bob Caldwell, and he has a big missions uh, organization in India from their church, Calvary Chapel, Boise. And, and he was speaking that to convert women or children in India was an offense, and you'd get one year in prison. But they went, and they started preaching the gospel, and women and children are getting converted, and they would get warned, and people would come in and threaten to close things down. But they just kept loving on the lepers, and they kept loving on in the slums, loving on people and building buildings and just ornamenting the gospel in India. And they said that even a a government official finally came, and he was part of one of the dedications of one of these buildings they built. He was just astounded at the love of Christ there in India. And so you'll receive praise from the same when you're doing good. Verse 4, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So the fourth way we have a relationship with the gospel is that the, uh, with the, 
government, excuse me, is that these authorities are actually ministers and servants for good. And they implement consequences to evildoers. I, every time I read this verse, I think of a story I heard in high school of Pastor John Corson. He pastors Applegate Christian Fellowship over in Applegate, Oregon, by Medford. And uh, he drove this yellow VW bug. You know, it was classic, imagining this big buff guy driving this little car. And he gets pulled over for some traffic infringement. And, uh, and he's being reprimand, reprimanded by the state trooper. And uh, as the trooper's finishing up, he's thinking, man, I'm just going to... I'm just going to schmooze this guy, you know. I'm just going to love him and just tell him about what Romans 13 says about him. And it's going to go great. And he, he, right when the trooper finishes up, he says, you know what, sir? Just appreciate your hard work today. You know, you are God's minister for good. You're doing good, right? <laughs> and the, this guy, he must have been a scholar of the scriptures because he promptly replies to, to John. He says, ah, but if you do evil, be afraid, for I do not bear the sword in vain. I am God's minister and an avenger to execute wrath on those that practice evil. And then he handed John a speeding ticket. <laughs> the policemen, the presidents, and the senators, they're actually God's minister for good. For good towards us. We have and we're thankful for the protection of an army and for the police that will come to our house at any hour of the night and for fire protection and medical aid and for roads that are clean and that we get to drive on smoothly and for parks that our kids get to play on and, and all sorts of toys at the park our kids can play on. We can have picnics on the lush cut grass. We have provision financially when we lose our jobs. And that God would make us thankful for the restraint that the government brings and the protection and the good that our government brings. And, and we get to be thankful. We're one of those nations that, man, we get to actually just look at what they've done and we get to say, thank you, Lord. And we can contrast that with a story that was from uh, the uh, Laredo, Texas newspaper back in June 2005, where it says, across the border from Laredo, Texas, is the city of Nuevo Laredo, Mexico. This town has lost its civil authority and is being ruled by gangs. Alejandro Dominguez was the only person brave enough to be police chief. Hours after he took office, assailants riddled his body with dozens of bullets, and this city was racked by turf battles between Mexico's two main drug gangs. The streets were virtually empty. Thursday, a day after the killing, with only a handful of federal police armed with rifles and automatic weapons. We are defenseless, Attorney Zarina Mendaro said at City Hall. It's obvious that the criminals are better organized than the authorities. They set the National Army and even they weren't respected. Who else can we ask help for? So we can be thankful for the order that is brought to our nation. What would we do even if 911 didn't answer the phone or if there were no police or no firemen or no National Guard or if only gang members were stealing and murdering and, and raping without restraint or retribution? We can be awfully thankful this Thanksgiving weekend. But we see that these government authorities, they do not bear the sword in vain. You might write in there, pack a revolver or carry a billy club in vain. It speaks to their peacekeeping. It, it speaks to war. It speaks to capital punishment. And we see that we're not, as Christians, as individuals, to take vengeance. But God has set up authorities that are to protect, that are to defend. In Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 through 6, 
You can flip there. It's the first book of the Bible. Noah gets off of the ark. It's the dawn of a new civilization. There's no Mosaic law yet. And yet the Lord speaks to him and says, Surely your, for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds men's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. And one day, Jesus will return to earth to visibly rule the world and to right all of its wrongs. But until then, God restrains evil, punishes evildoers, and keeps an orderly society through the instrument of human government that he has set up. And so verse 5, therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. So our fifth relationship with the government is we're to obey the law, not because we'll be punished if we don't, but for our conscience sake. Now, a reason for submission to the governing authorities is that beneath and and above the civil authority is a greater reality, the, the morality of God. The morality of God. We read here of right and we read here of wrong. And if we rebel against the authority, our conscience will condemn us for going against the moral law of God. Might does not make right in this text, but might enforces right, one man said. And so there's this conscience sake. You know, we're we're telling people to submit to the Lord and to submit to God, but we have unsubmissive attitudes all around us in every area of authority in life, whether it be wives in their submission to their husbands, children in submission to their parents, employees in submission to their employers, students in submission to their teachers, when really submission is a beautiful thing. It brings about roles. It brings about structure. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 15 through 20, we see Moses' mom and many midwives in, uh, in the Egypt area standing up because of conscience sake. It says in Exodus 1, 15 that the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom one of their names was Shiphrah, and the name of the other Puah, And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the wives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so we have obedience to the government for conscience sake, and we see times where there might be rebellion because of conscience sake. Moses' mom and these midwives would not have had a clean conscience if they would have allowed all of these Jewish boys to be slaughtered. In Daniel 6... We see another funny law brought about. You know, Daniel was successful. He was prosperous. He had favor with the king, even King Darius of the Medes and the Persians. And people were jealous of him. You know, natives were jealous of them. And so some of the governors and satraps plotted how they could, you know, 
scheme against Daniel and how they could, you know, throw him in jail or kill him or something. But it says there in Daniel chapter 6, these guys could not find any fault with Daniel. He was a guy that walked with the Lord. And so the only thing they could trick him in had to do with the law of his God. And so they tricked King Darius into making a law where for 30 days you could pray to no other God but to King Darius. And if anybody disobeyed, they were to, to go to the lion's den and be eaten alive by lions. And so Daniel, upon hearing this, it says, and you just got to love it, he's in your face in his rebellion. He could have gone home and closed the door and gotten his prayer closet and, oh, Lord, I'm only going to pray to you. I'm never going to pray to a king there. You know? No, he goes upstairs, you know, where there's obviously a clear view. He opens up his window. This is his custom. Three times a day he would do this. And he prays in clean sight for everyone to see. He openly rebels. And the king reluctantly throws, he liked Daniel, but he throws him into the lion's den and he hopes that God would spare him and God spares him and shuts the mouths of the lions. And as Daniel comes out the next morning, unscathed, untouched by the lions, the king Darius writes a letter that shows how politics are affected by the lives of Christians. As Daniel chapter 6, verse 25 through 27 says, King Darius wrote, To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever. He is living, he, his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? The... <laughs> Or I can read my note and act like it was a scripture. The best thing I can ever do politically is lead people to Christ. That should be in the Bible. It's really good. <laughs> note to self. Indent that the next time I preach this. The best thing I can ever do politically, even better than a rally, even better than picketing, is by being a witness to this world. By leading people to Christ. By advancing the gospel in our kingdom. And similar to Daniel's case, some Christians have come to the point in history where they believe the laws were so unjust and so evil. And political means of change seem to be frustrated for so long that peaceful, nonviolent, civil disobedient seemed right. In verse 6, we see that because of this, you also pay taxes because of, of the good that the, the government can do. You pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Our sixth relationship with the government is that we pay taxes and customs to them. Even the IRS tax agent is a minister to God. You are honoring God when you pay taxes. And since my wife is a CPA, you also help provide for my family when you pay taxes. So go to Mike Mohan, CPA. Okay, never mind. You hear about the guy that walked into the IRS office and sat down and the receptionist asked if she could help him. And he responded, no, I just want to see the, the people I've been working for all these years. Sometimes we feel like we're getting ripped off. We're getting stole, our money stolen. And yet Paul led by example in telling the, the people of Rome to pay to the Roman authorities. Jesus led by example by telling the Jews to pay taxes to the Romans who were oppressing them. 
Even when a government seems to spend our money on foolish things or immoral things, are we still supposed to pay taxes? And the answer is yes. Nero was not using tax money to open Christian schools or non-folks home or old folks home. He was using the, the finances to pay for his orgies, to pay for his parties, to pay for what they called the circuses and the carnivals. And yet the Romans here are told, hey, you pay those taxes. For the sake of the Lord, you pay those taxes. Jesus, he brought it about so beautifully in Matthew 22, verse 15. The Pharisees went and they plotted how they could trick Jesus and entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and you teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone for you don't regard the people of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They're trying to trick him. It's a tricky tax question and there's a lot behind it. But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they'd heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. When you begin to complain about taxes and when that season comes along, just look at the money. Just do what Jesus says. Look at the money. Whose inscription is on it? Whose, whose money is it? Whose face is on it? Give it back. Give it to whom it's due. And you'll notice that word due is used. Give it to whom it's due. You're not doing the government favors by paying taxes. You're giving the government what's owed to the government for the good that they work for you. Kent Hughes says of Jesus' statement, this statement made by our Lord was not only astounding the instant it was uttered, but it is even today universally acclaimed to be the single most influential political statement ever made in the history of the world. It was decisive and determinative determinative in shaping Western civilization. Jesus paid tax. His disciples paid taxes. They were commanded that they hadn't paid their temple tax. And so Jesus pulls money out of a fish's mouth. Can you imagine telling Jesus that he needed to pay the temple tax? Might not go well with you, but it did. They got their money. We're to have fear and reverence and respect towards those that rule over us. Think about that the next time you criticize the president or our rulers, or you tell jokes about them. We don't salute the man, but we salute the rank. And Timothy is told by Paul in chapter 2, verse 1, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so rather than joking or being critical, pray. After you watch the documentary, get on your knees and pray for your president. We know that the answer isn't found in George W. or Obama. It wasn't going to be found in Romney. It wasn't ever going to be found in Sarah Palin. But Jesus... He's the answer. Worship team, you can come on up as we close. 
And that's the basic argument of the text. The conclusion in verses 7 and 8, we're to pay all that's owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Speed limits to whom speed limits are due. Building codes to whom building codes are due. due. Fish license fees to whom fish license fees are due. Hunt deer only in season and within the boundaries of your unit. Kevin and I learned the hard way this year. Uh, Keep only five trout in southeast Minnesota. And make sure it's under 16 inches. No bird trapping or squirrel shooting within the city. Keep your grass cut. Keep the garbage from out behind your shed. No loud mufflers. Put your seatbelt on. (laughs) Make sure you can get out of your basement if there's a fire. Render to those that are due the things that are due them. And we know that, that the Lord, man, he is the ultimate king. And I love just thinking this morning, I was thinking of, of our king, you know, and, and in the end of the book of Revelation, we see him in all of his glory, and he's coming back, and he's just looking, you know, awesome like a king. He's riding a white horse, and he's got a crown on, he's got a tattoo, you know. He's just looking awesome, right? And then you flip the pages back, and you see him in another instance where he appears to be a lamb that was slain. You know, I just love thinking that our king, who demands that we honor our president, he says that we should honor our authorities. He's the king that shed his blood for us, that we could be citizens of his home. And so as we come to the communion table, man, there's not many of us who have not fallen short in this area, broken laws, skirted around codes. As we come and we take the, the bread and the cup, man, we can remember our king. We can remember him as the lamb that was slain, and we can remember him in all of his glory. And just let's confess as we take communion tonight, let's conf- this morning, let's confess to the Lord just the ways that we've fallen short, the ways that we've been bitter towards our king, we've been bitter towards our president, our government. As we look at God's economy and his kingdom, how he humbled himself He allowed himself to be stripped and whipped and beaten up and murdered. And it ended up being just the glory, the glory of the world. And that he would help us and empower us by his spirit to submit, to love and to pray and to be concerned for those that are in authority to to pray for them. And that whenever they would command us to do something God forbids or forbid us to do something God commands, he would give us the boldness and the power to stand up like many of these people we read today. Stand for truth, even if it meant our lives. Lord, that we'd humble ourselves under the thousand laws and ordinance in our city and in our nation. And that we would use our liberties, not for vice, but for the furtherance of the gospel. We worship you, Lord, great and awesome King. Lord, we do pray your kingdom come. Come quickly, Lord. 
You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.